Good morning. Um, they, they told me on the Spanish side at the end of the service that the, the heat must have stopped working uh, because it wasn't continuing to go higher in temperature. And they were wondering if I had shut off the gas because um, I tend to want it cooler. And I thought, you know, that'd be a good idea to do, but I, I didn't. Um, I can tell that the heat is working here. Hopefully everyone's nice and comfortable. We're in Matthew chapter 28. Uh, we'll be reading from verse 16 all the way to verse 20. And if you'll notice, that's the end of the gospel uh, of Matthew. It's been quite the saga. Not everyone who, uh, when I started, is, is still here. Um, it's kind of like uh, the, the Star Wars, you know, where <laughs> not everybody that watched the first one has got to watch the last one. Uh, but uh, here we are, chapter 28, verse 16. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Matthew 28, verse 16. This is the Word of the Lord. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, there is an imperative here that Christ has given. And the temptation would be to think that uh, it doesn't apply to us or to spend hours and hours debating, but what exactly does it mean? And never actually start obeying it. I pray now that your spirit would illumine our minds, help us to understand your word, and help us to be obedient to it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. One thing that we've been seeing over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew is that Matthew presents uh, fruit, one's actions, to be coming from a specific root. Whatever that root is, it produces certain types of fruit. And we've seen that throughout the gospel, different people's reactions. They react based on uh, uh, the type of root that they have. Uh, a thorn bush cannot produce grapes, and the grapes cannot produce roses, etc., etc. The fruit that you see, the actions, are based on whatever is happening inside the person. Now, as we go through this text... Uh, it might seem strange to you. And, and as we read it and we look at how the sentences are formed and we're looking at the text, you might want to push back against it. And I would, I would caution you to not fall into that. Uh, because all it's doing is exposing the, the root that's in your heart. If you find this text to be strange or a text that you think, this really doesn't apply to me, this really has nothing to do with me, I would encourage you to consider your own spiritual life as we go through this text. If you read The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, he's, um, he's there in the Shire and he's quite happy about being in the, in the Shire. He's had some family members that have been adventuresome, but he's, he's quite content living there. He's got his home, he knows his neighbors, 
Uh, he, he does his things, and he's quite happy to be there until one day Gandalf comes and comes the dwarves, and they, they need him for an adventure. Their mountain, their home under the mountain has been taken over by a dragon. And, and unless he goes with them, they're not going to succeed in being able to have a place to live. He, he doesn't want anything to do with it. He, he's happy in the Shire. He, he's happy. He's comfortable. And, and to leave the Shire, to go over there to help them so that they can have a place to live would involve leaving what he knows and, and it might endanger him. In fact, part of the contract that he signs is that if he lives through it, then he'll get these things. In other words, he, he might die in the process of going and helping someone else. He, he doesn't want to go, so Gandalf and the dwarves, they leave. And then he thinks about it and repents. And even though there will be hardships, even though there'll be cold nights, even though he'll miss the Shire greatly and his breakfasts, he decides to go and help them because they need help. Now, we're going to see this and we're going to apply this to our own lives as we've been looking through this gospel and we've been looking through gospel narrative. It's different from regular narrative. Regular narratives have a setting, they have a conflict, a climax, and then a resolution. But gospel narrative doesn't really fall into that kind of scheme. You, you, we don't really know where the climax is in a gospel narrative, and, and we don't know where the resolution is to that, to that conflict climax. Where's the resolution? For some, they, they think it's that moment when Jesus was born, when, when God became flesh. After that moment, the rest is history. It's all resolution from then on. Some say it's at that moment where he dies on the cross and his blood ransoms, redeems us, purchases us from the slave market of sin. And after that, there's just a resolution of, of everything else. And then for some people, they say, no, it's that the resurrection of Jesus, when he, he overcome, he's victorious over death, that's the climax. That's when he wins. And then after that, everything else is resolution. It's hard to really put gospel narrative into kind of a sequence of regular narratives. Another thing that's very interesting about narratives, gospel narratives, is how they end. You'll have a, a good story, a good story will go and move along, and then all of a sudden at the end it says, and they all lived happily ever after, the end. And you kind of go, ah, that was sweet, you know, that, that was nice. But the, the gospel kind of ends strange. Lo, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. Like, what is that? Is, is that an end? Or is that a beginning of something else? Is it ending here? He's going to be with it. Does that mean it keeps on going? It's hard to kind of put gospel narrative into a sequence of regular narratives. And as we look at this, we're going to see something very, very important, and that it's that Christians must disciple. I didn't say disciples must disciple, because you might try to differentiate between different types of disciples. You're like, I'm a regular Christian, and disciples are these guys up here, and then on top of them are apostles. No. Christians must disciple. Well, that's the job of pastors and elders and deacons, but I'm a church member, and that's not me. No. If you consider yourself a Christian, you have a responsibility to disciple. And that's what we're going to see in this text. Now, as we look at this... Uh, 
one of the things that we'll see here is that we must imitate Christ's faithfulness. We must imitate Christ's faithfulness. You'll see in verse 16 it says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. The eleven disciples. Weren't there twelve? Weren't there twelve men that, that Jesus had elected, that Jesus had, had chosen, that Jesus had taken? Weren't there twelve that Jesus had invested in, in teaching? and sending out, and, and bringing them back, and investing again and again into their lives. Wasn't it 12? What's, what is he saying when he says 11? Well, it marks that fact that there was one that was uh, betrayed Jesus. And even as we think about the disciples, and they're proceeding to Galilee, they're moving into that direction. They're moving there because Jesus has told them that he's going to meet with them. He's told them before all the, the, the crucifixion happened, and then he told the women to tell the disciples to go meet him at, in Galilee at the certain mountain. Now they're going to go up, and they're proceeding, and they're proceeding to a specific place. In, in other words, they're not just going up to Galilee, and they're like, you know, I, he said over here, but I really like the field over here. It, there's a little bit more shade, and you can kind of see the water at a better angle. It, it, it's not up to them where they're going to go. Rather, it's up to Jesus, and they have, they have to obey, they have to follow exactly what he says. They can't say, well, you know, I'm gonna, I, I like it on this side of the lake better. I, I know he said over there, but he'll come. He'll come to me. No, they must obey exactly what he said, go to the specific mountain that Jesus had designated, that he had pointed out, that he had uh, said was where they were going to go. Now, unlike the other Gospels uh, that uh, have uh, this recorded, uh, for example, John, John records the fact that uh, there's an interaction, there's a dialogue between Jesus and Peter. There, there is no type of correction. In fact, you see in verse 17, it says, when they saw him, which has this idea of a, of a continuous action. It's not like they just glanced at him and then, and then kept on looking at other stuff and like, oh, wow, look at the water. Isn't it beautiful? In other words, they're, they're gazing at him. They're looking at him. They keep on watching him. That's where their eyes are focused. And, and as they saw him, they worshipped him. It's the same word used to talk about what the women did when they saw Jesus, how they bowed down and worshipped. They worshipped him. Seeing Jesus led them to be worshiping Jesus. But not only worshiping, some were doubtful. Some were doubtful. Now, who was doubtful? The recording of Matthew, how he has arranged this story and the way he's put it, is unique to this gospel. So uh, people have tried to decide, who, who are the ones doubting? Is there a group of other people there present that... Maybe the disciples are worshiping, but there's this other crowd of, of people, and they're doubting. That's not been the strategy so far of Matthew as he's presenting this. He's presenting that the 11 are there, the 11 are seeing Jesus, the 11 are worshiping, and the 11 are doubting. Why are they doubting? It's a word that has um, concerned about something. They're wavering, they're uncertain, they're hesitating. Why are they feeling like that? Well, the last time that they were together, 
was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that scenario? they just gotten done eating. Their bellies were full. It was late at night. What else were they supposed to do but fall asleep, right? I mean, Jesus wanted them to be praying with him, but they had a full belly. And it was late. It was really late. Uh, they had said before that they, they were going to die with Jesus. There, there was no way that he was going to die by himself. They, they were going to be faithful until the end. But they didn't do that, did they? There's a hesitancy. What will this be like? There's an awkwardness. There's a, a, a severe awkwardness that, that's come upon them. What should we do? Now, we must imitate Christ's faithfulness. And how do we do that? How do we imitate Christ's faithfulness? We see that Christ is faithful. He's going to go to Galilee. He goes to Galilee. We see the disciples. They're not all there that he had chosen. And not only are they not all there, but they're kind of hesitating because there's all this baggage of what they did. They had uttered certain things, but then their actions were, were different. What should we do to imitate Christ's faithfulness? We have to focus our eyes on Christ. Just as they are gazing upon him, they must, we must focus our eyes on Christ. The temptation would be for the disciples to focus on their failures. And let me just say that their, their failure was massive. Massive, huge failure. But they have to put their eyes on Jesus. They must focus on Jesus. They can't focus on their failures. They have to realize that Jesus' grace is much bigger than their failure. Many times individuals will go around and they will say, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an adulterer. I'm a, I'm a liar. I'm a gossiper. And they'll just wallow in their sin, looking at it again and again, and say, I, I'm a mess up. There's no hope in that. There's only hope in looking at Jesus. That, that's the only hope, focusing their eyes on Christ. If you're going to imitate Christ's faithfulness, you have to look at Christ. You can't look at other stuff and expect to be able to imitate Christ. But we live in a time where we have certain TV personalities or we have uh, certain preachers or, or evangelists or theologians, and, and we get caught up in wanting to, we see them and we admire them and we start to emulate them. I, I remember um, a missionary, a co-worker of mine, he was talking about how there was this certain pastor, and he, he really liked this pastor, he really admired this pastor, and this pastor had this certain tendency to, to stutter. He would uh, get to preaching and then he would kind of stutter a little bit, and and this guy was so enthralled with this uh, pastor that he started imitating the stutter when he would preach. And he would just kind of purposely put that in, you know, at certain places. And, and there's a tendency to start looking at preachers, at theologians, at other people, rather than Christ. But we need to focus on Christ. Paul admonished the believers in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He says, be imitators of me, because I'm great. Right? No, he says, be imitators of me, just as I am also of Christ. In, in the sense that as I follow Christ, follow me. Look to Christ. Put your eyes on Christ. Imitate Christ's faithfulness by focusing your eyes on Christ. Not only do you have to focus your eyes on Christ as they were doing, as they're gazing at him, verse 17, 
But we also have to force ourselves to obey. All the disciples, even though Peter was the most vocal, all the disciples agreed that if Jesus died, they're dying too. But lo and behold, they didn't die, and Jesus did. It's an awkward moment. I mean, can you imagine the, the excuses they're making on their way up to Galilee? Like, I was totally going to die, but they put that thief on that cross that I was going to be, so I, I guess it'll have to be next time. But I was totally going to do it. They just gave it away to that thief. But how, how, do you, how do you do that? How do you go up and see Jesus after you've said such words that you were going to follow him all the way to the death? You have to force yourself to obey. He told them, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. It's awkward. They're hesitating. They're doubtful. But they have to go. Many times we want to understand understand everything to the nth degree before we're willing to obey. But if you're not going to obey until you understand something to the nth degree, you're never going to obey. You just won't. Because the Bible calls us to do certain things that we're not going to understand. But we're called to obey. We're called to obey. Many times we'll have desires, we'll have feelings, we'll have something, and what we're being called to obey contradicts what we feel, what we think, what we, what we imagine. I'll give you some examples. Times that were hard to obey. Genesis chapter 39, 6-9, you remember that Joseph is in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife has put her eye on Joseph. And she keeps on calling to him, come here. Keeps on calling and calling and calling to him. And he says, I cannot do this because it would be against God. Lost his job, got thrown in prison. Maybe he thought, maybe I should have just not obeyed God. Sometimes obeying God doesn't make sense, but you have to obey God. Remember in Philemon, that short little letter? Paul sends Onesimus, the slave, back to Philemon. He's got a letter from Paul. Uh, can you imagine Philemon? He's probably eating breakfast, and he, and he sees Onesimus coming up. He's like, oh, he's going to get it. And Onesimus hands him the letter from Paul, and he starts reading it. And Paul says, not only does he want Philemon to forgive Onesimus, but he wants them to release him because he's profitable for Paul's ministry throughout. Does that make sense? No, if I forgive this guy, Matt, all the other slaves are going to take off. I'll have no respect in this home. They'll, they'll just be wanting to do whatever they want to do. I have to make an example of him. Oh, to obey Scripture sometimes doesn't make any sense. Ephesians chapter verse 32 calls us to be kind tender hearted and to forgive one another and then Paul adds unless of course the person does something really really bad to you and in that case you don't have to forgive them no it says just as Christ has forgiven you you forgive others that doesn't make any sense I don't want to do that. They don't deserve it. It's just letting them off the hook. They're going to do it again. If you try, if you're going to wait to obey 
scriptures when you understand it to the nth degree, you'll never do it. You'll just keep on studying and studying and studying, never obeying. We must imitate Christ's faithfulness by focusing our eyes on Christ and by forcing our, ourselves to obey. But we must also respect Christ's authority. We must respect Christ's authority, and we see that in verse 18. It says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, the way Matthew has described this, he, he's really delayed what Jesus is going to say. It's a way of marking the text to make the reader really pay attention because it pauses. Usually in a dialogue it says, and he said this, and he said that, and he said this, and it just bounces back and forth. But when you put so many words, there's three verbals here. There's three verbals. He came up, and he spoke, and he's saying. It puts a delay. So you have this built-up anticipation. What did he say? All this... He's wait, we're waiting to see what he's going to say. And, and he says, all authority has been given to me. It all, it, it, I don't know if you like to highlight in your Bible, there's, there's four alls in this text. The, uh, the all authority uh, to all nations, verse 19, all that I commanded you, and always even to the end of the age. They're, they're the same Greek word. And he says, it has been given to me. It has been handed over to me. Given for me to, to, uh, to, to organize. It's my special responsibility. It's been appointed to me. What has been appointed to him? Authority. He has authority. Well, managers have authority. Well, what type of authority does he have? Well, there's the adjective. The adjective defines what type of authority he has. He has all authority. Not some authority. He has all authority. You, you remember that uh, Satan was trying to tempt Jesus. And uh, in that temptation, he says, if you bow down to me, I'll go ahead and just give you all authority here on earth. And he decides to not take up that offer. He, he decides to reject that offer. And now he has all authority where? Just in, on the earth? No. In heaven and on earth, all authority has been given to him. Now, Jesus many times was talking about he was the son of man. He used that title over and over again, and that's the title taken from Daniel chapter 7, 13, and 14, where there's the ancient of days, and there comes one as the son of man, and all authority, all dominion, all glory is given to this one. And he's saying now this is a fulfillment of that. All authority has been given. He has all authority on he in heaven and on the earth. Now, let's just imagine for a moment that uh, back when that temptation happened in Matthew chapter 3, let let's imagine that he, Jesus thought about it. Was Jesus going to get all authority on earth? Well, of course he was going to get all authority on earth. The problem was not that it wasn't his and not that he was desiring something wrong because he was going to have, the uh, he was going to have it and it was going to be his. The problem was that it wasn't God's timing. There is a temptation sometimes in us to have something that is right and something that is good outside of God's timing. And when we want something good and when we want something right, but we want it on our timing rather than God's timing, that's sin. 
he would have to wait for God's perfect timing, which was three and a half years down the road. And he would have to wait and go through suffering to get to this point. Now, many times we're not willing to do that. Like, this is right. I deserve this. Give it to me. I don't want to suffer. I can go around the suffering. But he doesn't do that. Now, we must respect Christ's authority. And, and, and there's something very interesting about this in respecting Christ's authority. As we look at this, that he has all authority, we must recognize that rebelling against Christ now is rebelling against God. Since it has been given to Christ, this authority, to rebel against Christ is to rebel against God. So you can't say, if you were tried to do this, that I want to love God, I just don't want to obey what Christ says. I, I want to be a follower of, of my Abba and have him just pick me up in his arms and just love on me. But this thing about what Jesus is about to say, that's not for me. To do that, you're rebelling against the Father. Because you can't say, I'm going to disregard the authority of the Son and somehow be all good with the Father. Rebelling against Christ is rebelling against God. Christ's authority has been mentioned in several different ways. And what I'm talking about here is his lordship. I know that that term has had uh, certain connotations in, in different places, but what I'm meaning is that he has absolute authority. He has absolute authority. It gets presented in different ways. In Hebrews chapter 13, 20 and 21, he's the great shepherd. Uh, sheep don't have a dialogue with the shepherd and say, you know, you kind of walked us a lot yesterday. I, I don't want to walk today so much. Sheep don't do that. They don't dialogue with the shepherd. They just go. In Spain, I, I saw the shepherds, and they would walk through these fields, and, and they had these dogs. And every once in a while, one of these sheep thought, I'm going to think. And so they'd start thinking and start wondering. And the shepherd would send that dog, and that dog would bark at it, and it get right there with its group, and it keep on walking. Why? Because they're not supposed to think. They're supposed to follow the shepherd. Jesus also, this, this lordship aspect is also presenting that Jesus is the master. Paul says that he, he's a bondservant. He has no rights. He must surrender to what the master tells him. He has no rights. He's just a slave. Now, his authority is the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. And, and this, is, this is very, very important to think about. Because as we think about this, and we think about submitting to the Lordship of Christ, we have to say, is there an image, is there an image of someone who doesn't do this? And I would say that Matthew presents very clearly an image of somebody that doesn't do this. An image would be the Roman authorities and the soldiers. Remember them? Did they accept Christ's authority? No, they mocked them. They beat him. They crucified him. So if you don't want to accept Christ's authority, that puts you in line with the Roman authorities. Is there anybody else who didn't do that? Yeah, Israel's religious leaders. They didn't accept Christ's authority. Oh, they had religious clothes on. They had a religious vocabulary. They even went to the temple and, and were involved in religious activities but they did not submit themselves to the authority of Christ. Who would want to be in those two categories? 
the image of somebody who does not want to submit to the authority of Christ. That's your alternatives. Who wants that? Now, as we do this and we think about accepting Christ's authority, and we recognize that if we're going to rebel against Christ, we're rebelling against God, the alternative, therefore, is to actively model a respect for Christ's authority by obeying Jesus, by obeying Jesus, by being obedient. Uh, there is this uh, scenario that's recorded in Luke chapter 10, 25 and, and forward. There's this interpreter of the law, and he comes up to Jesus, and he's, he wants to know how can he inherit uh, eternal life. And Jesus says, well, what do the scriptures say? And he says, well, you've got to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor. And Jesus said, go do that. You've said, well, go do that. The interpreter just didn't like that answer. So he started trying to split hairs, and he said, oh, who's my neighbor? Let, let's define, let's start defining terms, and let's try to understand exactly what we're talking about neighbor, how many feet away from me. Let's measure this out. Define what a neighbor is to me. And so Jesus starts going into the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you ask him, who's the neighbor? The thing is, as we can look at this, we can get all types of caught up in what does it mean to go? What does it mean to disciple? And let's start parsing all these things and let's try to understand them all and at the end of the day, we go 15, 20 years, and we're never obeying the text. And it would be shame on us to be like that. Well, what does it mean to love your neighbor? And we act just like the lawyer, the interpreter of the law. Jesus calls us to respect his authority by obeying. Not by, not by debating, not by questioning, but by obeying. Now, we've seen that we must imitate Christ's faithfulness by focusing our eyes on Christ, by forcing ourselves to obey. We must respect Christ's authority, realizing that rebelling against Christ is also rebelling against God, and actively modeling a respect for Christ by obeying Jesus. And that leads us to our last point, which is obeying Christ's mandate. Obeying Christ's mandate. And we see that in verses uh, 19 and 20. The way it's presented here is that uh, there's this word go, and it almost seems imperatival. It almost seems like a command, like you go. And we must understand it a little bit. The go is a participle of going. And it's a passive participle, which means that it's not that the subject is sending themselves, they are being sent. And uh, if you notice, it says therefore, the therefore is... Uh, is dependent upon what was previous to it. Basically, the going is dependent upon the fact that Christ has authority to send, and we have responsibility to go. The going, being sent out, is for the purpose of making disciples, and that's the imperative. That's the imperative. That is the command. Make disciples. Of whom? Well, of those who vote like me. Those who dress like me. Those who have similar interests as me, who look like me, who talk like me, and uh, that I'll be able to have fun with. That limits a lot of people. <laughs> um, no! 
Of who? Of the nations, of the ethnic groups. Of, of which ethnic groups? Well, there's that adjective again. Of all ethnic groups. All of them. That includes here. That includes outside of here. That includes around the world. All. What are you supposed to do with them? You're supposed to baptize them. Uh, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, I've heard, and, I, and I've heard people say, you know, the important thing is to accept Christ as your Savior, and then baptism is something optional. And they'll use as kind of like this proof of like, like they they want to prove this point, like like they've really thought this thing through, and they've got this solid argument, and they're saying, and I'll, I'll give you proof that the important thing is to believe in Christ and the like. The, the, the thief on the cross. What did he do? He believed in Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Today you'll be in prayer. Did he get baptized? And of course the people say, no. See, there's my point. Of course, there's a faultiness in that, isn't there? It's a chronological faultiness. In that he dies, he believes and dies before the, the command was given. It's not an optional step. Like, if you want to get wet, you can. If you don't, it's okay. It's okay. Why? Because baptism identifies the person with whom? With the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. It says, I've died to myself. It makes a public reflection. I'm dead. And now I live for Christ. It's not optional. It's like, well, if you want to, uh, it's too cold outside. We'll wait till the summer when it's convenient. Can we just do the, the spraying? I saw one church was doing the spraying because of COVID. Can we do the spraying? No! It's not an option. He says, baptize them. They're supposed to make this public profession that they now are dead to themselves and living. For whom? For the Father, for the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And to teach them. To teach them to observe, to watch over, to care for, to obey all, all that I've commanded you. And then here's the promise. And lo, I am with you some of the times. Is that what it says? I'm with you if you stay here in spring, but you go off to that weird jungle out there somewhere. Uh-uh, I ain't going over there. Don't send your sons and your daughters over on the other side of the world to Russia. It's too cold. I'm staying here in spring. That's what God says? No. What's the promise? Why can we go anywhere in the world? Why can we send kids all over the world? Because Christ is with them. It's the promise. He, he is with them. We're not going to be with them. We're going to send them out. But Christ will be with them. How long? All the way to the end of the age. As we look at this, and we, we think about this, I know that many times we'll get caught up in trying to decide this is the part where we'll start parsing hairs and be like, well, what's discipleship? Well, well, well what doctrines are you going to include? Are you going to include, are you going to include the Bible? And we'll start debating over and over again, what is discipleship? How many lessons is it? Huh? How many lessons are you going? Oh, only 14. Hmm. Hmm. What is discipleship? That that word, that teaching them to observe all things has to be first interpreted based on the context. And the context of the Gospel of Matthew is that it's presented the Lordship of Jesus. 
Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. And then throughout, it gives this, this lordship of Jesus. He sits down on the mountain and starts interpreting the law. He goes through and he has authority over the demons, over nature. Everything that is presented is the king is here. Bow down before him. What do you disciple? You teach people to submit themselves to the authority of Christ in their lives. Parents, what should you be teaching your kids? To submit to God. Why the kids said, why do I have to listen to you? Well, in that of myself, there is no reason except for the fact that God put me as authority in your life. And therefore, to obey me is to glorify God. You teach them to submit to God. How they speak, how they dress, how they conduct themselves. You encourage your spouse to what? To submit to the lordship of Christ in their life. Now, as we look at that, we must be willing to teach God's will. And now I want to develop this a little bit theologically. And as we look at this theologically, I hope we can all stay together with this. What is God's will for each of us? 2 Peter 1.3 says that His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How has He granted that? It says, through, through true knowledge of Him who called us, through knowledge of Jesus Christ. How then do we get this knowledge of Jesus Christ? How do we get this true knowledge of Jesus Christ? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all scriptures are God-breathed and that they are profitable so that they can get us ready to be doing good works. How do we qualify good works? Do each of us determine what a good work is? I have my good works and you have your good works and you have your good works. And, and, or is there a standard well, yes, there is a standard. God said that this is uh, His Son in whom He's well pleased, Matthew 3.17. And Jesus tells us the reason why God is well pleased in Him is in John chapter 6, verse 38. He says that He always does the will of the Father. Therefore, good works, if, if God is well pleased in the Son, and the Son always does the will of the Father, Therefore, to be doing good works is to be doing the will of the Father. How do we do the will of the Father? What is it that the Christian should strive for and to look like? Paul answers that question in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that you be conformed to the image of Christ, that you look like Him. Therefore, discipleship is a process of helping individuals look less like themselves and more like Christ where they stop talking like themselves and they start talking as Christ would talk. They stop thinking as themselves and they start thinking as Christ would think. And their actions would be as those of Christ instead of, of themselves. That is the process of discipleship. That's the process of what you should be doing in your home. You should be doing with your neighbors, your co-workers here in spring. And Lord willing, we'll be sending people out around the world to be doing it to millions of people who have no chance of hearing the gospel. 4.3 billion people that haven't heard about Jesus Christ. They're unreached, unengaged. Can you imagine? It's not that they don't have a good evangelical church around them. It's not that they don't have a good Baptist church close by to them. It's there's nothing there 
How will they hear? Well, not from North Oaks. God has no desire to send anybody out from here. He wants us all to just stay together and just pet on each other. That's absurd. The commandment is to go. And we must go. We must do it here, and we must do it over there. We, we must obey it. We can't say, well, I don't like that. I don't want to do that. It's not convenient for me. You go sending off people, we'll lose membership. It's about obeying what he has said. Maybe as I'm talking right now, this seems really strange to you. And you would want to question your root. Not the text, you would want to question your root. Why is it that this text seems so different, so odd? Like, I don't want to do this. And it's maybe because you've never submitted yourself to the authority of Christ in your life. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. There's never been a moment where you've recognized your sin and, and gone to Christ and accepted what He did on the cross as the only thing that can save you. Maybe you have done that, but you've fallen into some type of trap of thinking that um, this is not for you. This doesn't have anything to do with me. This has to do with, um, with a certain group of people. Well, if they're teaching them to observe all that they commanded, they would have to be teaching this. And therefore, the last lesson that you always take to somebody who you're discipling is this lesson. Christians must consistently disciple by teaching all to submit to the Lordship of Christ in their life. Are you doing that? Are you teaching those around you to submit to the Lordship of Christ? As we look at this, we remember Bilbo Baggins. He hesitated. He really had no desire to go on an adventure. He was quite comfortable in the Shire. He knew what he was going to eat. He knew his neighbors. He didn't want to leave. But there were a group of people that weren't going to have a place to live unless he went. It's much more serious for us. There's a group of people that will never hear the gospel unless we go. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I pray as we reflect on this text, it's not a suggestion. It's an imperative. It's a command. I pray, Father, that this church will disciple people. That, that we will teach individuals to submit to the authority of Christ. Father, that we'll do that here. We'll send people out to plant churches. Father, we'll send missionaries across the seas. I pray that we will obey this text, Father. Soften our hearts. Give us the courage.